Welcome to the Dr. Gill Show. This is where we talk about medical matters that matter to you. My guest today is Dr. David McLaren. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks, Gil. Thanks for having me. Pleasure being here. You have a nice setup. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Yeah. David is a, a friend of mine. David is a board-certified neurologist. He's a medical doctor. He's been working in the area for many years. David has, is tapering down his practice, and now he's more of a consultant nowadays. But David is a certified teacher of transcendental meditation. Correct. And I've had a, I've been doing transcendental meditation. I've had a, a great interest in TM, which we'll call it, since I was an early teen. And when I knew several years ago you were getting your final certification and training in Thailand and all this stuff, I, I was just, I was so happy to know that and uh, fascinated by by the whole process, and I've really been looking forward to talking to you about the subject of transcendental meditation, where it, it comes from, how you were taught about it, what made it interesting to you, and what's available to the public right now as far as uh, learning about transcendental meditation and learning how to do it. Yeah, that sounds great. So um, let me tell you kind of first how I got into this. Okay? Please do. So. Um, I uh, went to college my first year. I, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, and that has kind of a spiritual feel to it in the Southwest, you know. Um, and I grew up there and I went to school, first year of college, University of Oklahoma. I went back for the summer. And when I was in high school, you know, I, I was brought up Lutheran and kind of had to go through catechism classes and all that. And when I was around 16, I remember I was reading this book that my mom had about comparative religions. And I was talking about Buddhism and Hinduism, and talking about Zen and all these different concepts of the self and Atma and Samadhi and blissfulness and the inner self and things. And it really kind of caught my attention. I was really attracted to those ideas. And uh, so that just kind of set with me. Um, well, in my high school years, you know, that's the time really when Maharishi, Maharishi Yogi, who brought Transcendental Meditation to the world really, really became uh, you know, known throughout the world. Back in around the mid-60s, uh, he was teaching Transcendental Meditation, and then uh, the Beatles started meditating. You know, the, yes. Beatles went to, the Beatles went to India with Maharishi and spent several months there with them. And then, you know, and everybody in the world, you know, knew about the Beatles. I mean, what an entree into, yeah. into, into, so, into popularity. So at that time, it's like, you know, then, after that, Maharishi was really well known. People were really interested in transcendental meditation. And so when I was 19, I was back home in Albuquerque for my first uh, summer home. And uh, a friend of mine said, uh, hey, there's this teacher of transcendental meditation coming through town. He just became a teacher. You know, he was in Europe, became a teacher. And uh, he's like on his way to LA. He's going to teach you a class in transcendental meditation. Why don't we do this? Go, oh, yeah, that sounds really great. So. You know, at that time, it cost $35 to do it. It was a student <laughs> fee, okay? And so, uh, you know, $35, that's maybe like $450 nowadays sure. in terms of value, okay? So my mom, who grew up in the Depression, very, I mean, you know, every penny, you know, was yeah, saved. Yeah, I know, you know the mindset. Yeah, okay. So I go, my mom would never give me, you know, money for anything, really. <laughs> my mom would go, hey, mom, I want $35 to learn transcendental meditation. She said, oh, yeah, great. Here you go. <laughs> she was already sold. <laughs> yeah, she was already, she says, that, that sounds great. So I said, oh, okay. So that's when I started. So I learned Transcendental Meditation when I was 19. And I, you know, continued to practice it and practice it and practice it. And when I was um, in between the summer of, my, of uh, college and medical school, um, a friend of mine had become a teacher of Transcendental Meditation that I knew in college, and he said, hey, there's going to be this big course of meditation. We're all going to kind of get together in this new college in Fairfield, Iowa. And let's go up there, and we'll spend six weeks in deep meditation wow. in Fairfield, Iowa. And I had it six weeks off, okay? Ah. And it didn't really cost anything. 
And, you know, I had like a little, I think I had a VW Fastback or something oh, back perfect. then, you know, <laughs> like a first fuel injected car ever in the, in the nation. And it was a piece of junk, but I made it to Iowa. I spent six weeks meditating. I loved it. It was great. I went back. And so from then on, I, I would go up to Iowa every now and then to do some deep meditation. And that school is still in Iowa. Yeah. So the name uh, it? it's Maharishi International University. It's an accredited university. It's, uh, you know, they do things in regards to consciousness and meditation, but it's actually really well known for its business school, uh, accounting in particular, computer science. There's a lot of international students go there. And then David Lynch has a film uh, production, uh, film school up there as well. So this so, is a real accredited yeah. university. This is not just some uh, hippie ashram. Yeah, no, this have, is the real yeah, thing. They have undergraduate programs, graduate programs, doctoral programs. I mean, it's accredited by whatever that national accreditation sure. thing is. Yeah. So um, uh, they get the appropriate funding and stuff. So it's, uh, it's a small school, you know, there's just a few thousand students up there, but there's a lot of uh, online students nowadays as well. So I, I would go up there every night. So I would practice transcendental meditation, you know, at home, and then I went through medical school, and then I moved to Chicago, and then I, I eventually came here to Columbia, Missouri to do private practice in neurology. And um, when I first came here, I was, I was very, very, very busy. You know, it was just a very kind of big culture shock for me. And uh, the call schedule was horrendous, and, mm. and I got really burned out. I mean, even though I was meditating uh, in the morning and evening, I was just, it was just a lot. I would miss sure. meditations. I wasn't feeling that well. So I started going back up to Fairfield and spending a week up there, about every three or four months, you know, uh. doing some deep meditation. I would get so rejuvenated and so refreshed I could come back here work really hard, I'd get rid of that stress, that fatigue, that burnout, you know? uh -huh. it, would just, it would just wash away and I'd be ready to go for several more months. So I kept on doing that. So the last 10 or 15 years, I really wanted to become a teacher of Transcendental Meditation. This, this would be a great thing to teach other people. You kind um, of do in a, in a later yeah, part of your life. Yeah. So I had, I had a child later in life and I had to you know, work and make money to get him through college, but once he was through here at the University of Missouri, you know, he got a degree in business and stuff. I said, okay, you know, I'm done. So I quit private practice uh, and I applied to teacher training and transfer meditation. Um, it's a very hard program to get into. There was only one other American there at the teacher training program besides me. And where and, was this teacher training program? This was in Chantaburi, Thailand. Thailand. So, yeah. You had to go to the other side of the world the for your training. Southeast Thailand. And I, I had never experienced the monsoon. Oh. And I'll tell you what, the first four months, it rained nonstop for four months. It always felt like it was 110 degrees with 100% humidity all the time. Because it was. It was, it was <laughs> so we were in these little buildings and we had to go to different buildings for different things. But you always had to carry your umbrella with you because yeah. I mean you'd go to one building if you didn't take your umbrella by the time you went to the next building for something else it just downpour you know so you every room had an umbrella kind of was the room number on it and you took it with you everywhere and you wore sandals you know we wore long pants but we would roll the pants up to our knees because you're walking in water and it was just Oh, were there <laughs> so, mosquitoes? Oh my God, yeah. Oh, so you, you had to really mosquitoes, do a penance. snakes, scorpions, and they had these centipedes that were like a foot long, <laughs> about an inch in diameter, and they were red. And they would just crawl around, and they were poisonous. Oh. So if you stepped on one at night or something, you'd, be, you'd end up in the hospital like in a chemical coma for several days because the pain and the swelling was so bad. So Boy, it was you, an adventure. You had to be serious about yeah. this too. You had, had to, to want serious. it. So it was six months. It was seven days a week. It was started at 6 a.m. and you went to bed at, at 10 p.m. It was a very intensive training program. So you learned a lot. It was all designed by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Everything that was in that course, he designed. And he passed away in 2008. But everything that I learned there, I watched hundreds of hours of videotape of Maharishi because whenever he was doing teaching and speaking, they would videotape him. And they have hundreds of thousands of hours of videotape of Maharishi. And they're still, a lot of them are still in a vault in a basement someplace in Switzerland. You know, they uh -huh. all that stuff. So all that stuff that I learned was designed by Maharishi. He wanted to train more teachers to, so that the transcendental meditation could be learned by anybody in the world. And... It's amazing what this man did, actually, because, you know, he arrived in San Francisco 
in December of 1959. Okay. And he'd been living in India. He, had been, I mean, he grew up in India. You know, people don't know this about Maharishi, but he had an advanced degree in physics. He was oh, very interested. He was, he was a, a, a excellent in math and physics. He was very much into nuclear physics, quantum mechanics, you know, all that wow. fancy stuff. Yeah. So he didn't meet his teacher, you know, back in India, they call him a guru. They didn't meet his teacher until he was actually in graduate school. And he wanted in India. To, yeah, and he wanted to stay with him. His teacher said, said, no, go back to school, complete your studies, and then come back and see me. So he did, and then he, he stayed with his teacher for several years, kind of learning from him. So it comes from a, a Hindu tradition? Which goes... It comes from a Vedic tradition. So Vedic, the, the, what is the yeah. difference? So the Vedic tradition actually precedes what we think of Hinduism by several thousand years, probably about 2,000 years. So this goes so this is way, from, back way back there. So this is in the northern... Northern India part in the Himalayas, really. Okay, so in the West we're familiar with uh, like the Brahma Sutras, the Yoga Sutras, the Upanishads. Um, so those are kind of some of the things, some of the literature that here in the West that we are familiar with, and those are all actually of the Vedic tradition. Oh. Now there's 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 lots of different I'd say volumes of books of Vedic literature, but originally they were all just they were all just oral tradition that later got written down into Sanskrit. Okay. okay. So that, you know, there's the Rig Veda and there's all these different subsets of, of Vedic literature. And the Upanishads and things like that are just, a, you know, it's a very small part of it. So that's the tradition that it came from. That actually pre precedes what later became the Hindu tradition. Transcendental meditation is just a technique of meditation. It's a, it's a technique of consciousness. And it, there are no beliefs. There has nothing to do with Hinduism. You know, I don't teach philosophy. I don't teach beliefs. You don't have to change your, your lifestyle. So this is not anti-Christian. It's not pro any religion at all. Right. I, I understand it's very accepting. So interestingly, we're talking about the school I went to. Yes. So um, my, I, you buddied up with a guy. There was like 30 men on one part of the campus and like 30 women on the other part of the campus. My buddy was Rabea. And Rabea was from Beirut. And, and he was Muslim. So there were several Muslims there, okay? So Rabea was Muslim. He was of what's called the Druze, D-R-U-Z-E tradition, wow. which I'd never heard of, but he taught me a little bit about it. Um, so there were, uh, there were some Hindus there. There was a guy from India who I got to know very well, uh, Alok. Um, there was a guy from Bangladesh, uh, in Bengal, uh, and he was Hindu. There was three Japanese fellows. They were all Buddhists, okay? Ah. There were, there were um, kids from Bali. Um, there were three teenage kids from Bali. Their whole high school does transcendental meditation. Wow. And they have a kind of a Vedic tradition that's been there for centuries. Uh, so practically the whole nation, well, it's not a nation, the island, sure. a lot of people do transcendental meditation. Most of the schools do it there. Um, so they came, and they, so there's, there were Russians there. There were Germans there. There were uh, French people there. Um, so there was, and was only, there was only one other American. So, so they're very eclectic in terms of all the religions of the world were basically there when we're all kind of learning how to become transcendental meditation teachers. So, so we don't teach any kind of religion, meditation, beliefs. It's a technique of consciousness. It's a technique of meditation. And we don't even talk about philosophy or beliefs. That's, that's fascinating. Now, meditation has been a part of understanding, of religions, of cultures for thousands of years. And there's many different types of meditations. There's many different types of meditative practices. And I know they all have some similarities, but there's some actual um, differences in technique and whatnot that yeah, I'd like so, to flush out, yeah, so unpack a little bit with you. Can you. Take, you can take most forms of meditation and you can divide them up kind of into three different groups, okay? You take focus style of meditations, where it's kind of a concentration technique, okay? So, and Zen would be kind of in that tradition. So it's kind of open monitoring techniques, and mindfulness would be in that tradition. Uh, there's contemplative techniques, okay, which is more in the Western tradition, say, in Western tradition, we think of meditation, not so much nowadays, but say back when I was a kid, meditation thought, well, you, you took a proverb or something, some saying out of the Bible, and you would think, have deep thoughts about it in terms of, how it was going to affect your life, how you could put it to greater use in your life, and 
what you would do in your life to, to kind of try to fulfill whatever that, that saying was. So it was a, it was a thinking process, a contemplation. Right. Transcendental meditation is an, what we call an automatic transcending process. So it's different from those other forms of meditation. What's interesting, there's different, you know, I'm board certified in neurology, but I'm also board certified in electroencephalography, you know, EEG, wow. brainwave analysis. Oh. So when you look at brainwave tests, ah. there's different styles of brainwave activity for each style of meditation, okay? Yeah, please yeah. explain that. I, th I think well, that transcendental meditation fosters alpha waves, the mindfulness you mentioned was more theta waves and the concentration accentuated beta waves. Am I exactly correct? Am exactly I on correct. that? Okay. So when we when we concentrate on something like on anything really, like trying to solve an algebra problem or something like that, or if you're in, like in Zen meditation, you're concentrating on you're, you're focusing on a flame or whatever your technique is. The predominant brainwave activity is very low voltage, but very fast activity, what we call beta activity. It's usually like 16 to 25 cycles per second in terms of how fast the brainwaves are going. So that's the predominant type of brainwave activity that we see uh, in people that are focusing on something. That's the type of brainwave activity we see in, in Zen type of meditation. I've got a question for you. I play chess. And I will spend a long time on trying to figure out a move. Would that, that count in... And, and I'm tr I'm attracted to it. I find that very <laughs> pleasurable trying to figure out the right move. Would that kind of be in that category? Well, maybe that's in that category, but I wouldn't call that a meditation per se. It's probably a little different than Zen techniques. Okay. But now, if you look at like mindfulness techniques and you do brainwave monitoring during those techniques, it's more of a, a four, five, six, seven, uh, not four, five, six, seven cycles per second. It's more of a slower type of brainwave activity you see predominantly over the brain. And that's kind of um, people when you're just kind of having an open awareness and you're kind of having non-judgmental perceptions of whatever your body is feeling, the thoughts that come and go in a kind of non-judgmental way. Um, in transcendental meditation, what you see is you see high voltage alpha activity that starts over the, the back of the brain, the occipital area. Mm. And that is what we see in people who are in a state of, of restful alertness. And that's really what transcendental meditation is kind of physically and in terms of brain physiology, it's a state of restful alertness. And that high voltage brainwave activity, that alpha activity, spreads over the entire brain. It doesn't just stay in the back of the brain where we normally see it. But it's really amazing when you actually see this visually. It spreads over the entire brain. And not only does it spread over the entire brain, but it becomes synchronous in terms of comparing the left hemisphere activity to the right hemisphere activity ah. in the back of the brain with the front of the brain. So that's called brainwave coherence or EEG coherence. So that's something that's very unique in regards to transcendental meditation that we see. So it's a very enhanced form of very deep restful alertness that we're seeing physically. There's a bunch of other physiologic parameters that you can study and that have been studied in transcendental meditation in terms of measuring prolactin levels, serotonin levels, uh, cortisol levels, serum lactate levels, uh, heart rate, blood pressure, all those things while wow. people are meditating, even functional MRI imaging. So there's all these other physical parameters that we can talk about in terms of the kind of changes that we see when people are practicing transcendental meditation. But let me talk a little bit more about kind of the technique itself. You know, it's taught, the first day is always taught one-on-one, -on -one, okay? It's me with the student. It usually takes eh, about an hour and a half, two hours. And usually I'll have a meeting with the student for a half hour, hour, hour and a half prior to that prior to my actually teaching so I can kind of learn about what the student's about and stuff. So I can so I can select the appropriate sound or mantra that we use. You know, it's a mantra-based type of meditation. And we'll talk more yes, about I that. Yes, I want to talk more about that. So the way we teach is that that first day is one-on-one. -on -one. It's me with the student. That's why I had to go to Thailand for six months was to learn how to do this properly because it's a very powerful technique. And so you have to make sure that you're doing the right mantra with the right, with the right person. So that's why you need a teacher. It's a one-on-one -on -one, uh, process. And then the next three days, you usually spend like about two hours per day for the next three days to kind of answer questions, to kind of get the technique down, you know. But typically after a week or two of practice, people are very adept at it. It's, you know, they, they get it. Mm -hmm. Most of the time when I teach people, they get it the first day. It's, Boom, it just happens. And what happens is that 
they're, they're, they get this intense feeling of relaxation, peacefulness, almost a blissful feeling, heavy relaxation in the body, and, and that's their subjective sensation. They come out and they go, wow, that's incredible. That's, that's tremendous. This is superb. Uh, and that's most. For some people, it takes a little bit longer. Uh, it kind of depends on the person and what kind of state their health and physiology and what their mental state is in at the time that they learn and things. I'm going to tell you a very profound experience I had. Um, when I was 12, 13, we were living in uh, campgrounds in Europe and uh, met this lovely young couple. And I was a kid and I went up to their van. I knocked on their van. And I, wanted, I forget what I wanted to talk to him about. And it was quiet. I knocked again. And I just heard, we're meditating, please come back. And fine. So, and later on that day, we're at the campfire having dinner or whatever, and I talked to them. And there were these lovely people. They seemed like they, they had it together. They were people I wanted to, to meet. And I was, I said, well, what do you do? I said, well, we're doing transcendental meditation. So when I came back to the States, I was 13. Um, Somebody had mentioned a class. Maybe they even came by my school. I said, we're offering class. So I went to a class like this, one-on-one. -on -one. And I'll never forget, the instructor whispered a mantra in my ear and just said, start repeating it over and over. And I almost fell off my chair. <laughs> it was like this wave fell off, fell into myself. It was a whole another experience. Yeah of existence, of consciousness. Yeah. I will never forget that moment as long as I lived it. Yeah, yeah. that's really beautiful the way you say that. Cause, and I had the same experience when I learned when I was 19, was just, just this deep falling into myself. That's beautiful the way you said that. Mm. It actually felt like I was falling into myself, self with the big S, not the mm. self with the little S, not the id, not the ego, not, the, not, not mm. what we normally think is a personality, but falling into myself, that big S. That, that big, peaceful, unbounded awareness. And that's the transcending. That's the transcending process. And so it's really interesting how this works. It's a very natural technique, okay? We're just using the, the way the brain's hardwired already, okay? We're all capable of having this experience, but we just don't know how to get there. Our brain is hardwired to have this experience of transcendental consciousness, this pure, unbounded awareness. It's there, okay? We just kind of lost our ability to, to find that spot. Some people will experience that you know, spontaneously in their life at certain points in time, okay? So we all have that capability. If you're anywhere near normal neurologically, you know, if you're right. awake, alert, and can talk and think, you can practice transcendental meditation and you can learn it easily. So what, what the technique does, the mantra does, it's a certain sound. It's a sound that is picked particularly for you, let's say, and that goes along with your It has all kind of good life-supporting effect, okay? And what that does, it, it helps to keep our mind alert but undirected. And what it does, it allows the yeah. mind to just naturally go to that which it normally would like to think is more pleasing, okay, more peaceful. We all kind of have this desire, you know, not all the time, but we have a desire to have more peace, to have more happiness, to have more of that inner stability, okay? And our mind will go there if we give it the opportunity. So it's kind of like going to sleep in a way. It's like, you uh. know, we don't try to go to sleep. We just set up circumstances, okay? I'm board certified in sleep as well. <laughs> so, so, you know, we, we brush our teeth, we put on our pajamas, you know, we do something, you know, we say our midnight prayer or whatever, you know, and, and then we lay down, we turn off the lights and we go to sleep. We're just setting up the physiologic circumstances so that our brain will be allowed to go to sleep. Okay. Ah. In transcendental meditation, we're just setting up circumstances that allows our brain to experience these deeper, quieter, more subtle states of thought, of that thought of the mantra, until finally that just drops off, and then we fall into ourself, as you said. Okay. Hearing this from you, experience. David, as a multiply board-certified neurologist who understands the, the brain function behind this, I mean, it gives us such weight and authenticity and bona fide um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for this, this, this is this is this is 
a very real important phenomenon. And I want to interject that people in the government over the years have been very interested in this and agencies such as the Defense Department and whatnot have put millions of dollars into this because they, John, this was a quote from one of the uh, websites I read, that transcendental meditation has been shown to have wide-ranging benefits in markedly reducing stress, improving overall health, and boosting creati cre uh, creativity and performance. And you can imagine, you have soldiers burning out, they're tired, you need them to be at the top of their game. Um, you, can, you can think of athletes, you can think of uh, chess players, you can think of surgeons, doctors, you can think of anybody that who wouldn't be interested in boosting creativity and performance. Yeah, well, let's talk about a couple of those groups, okay? Please. So, um, healthcare providers. Man, there are so many burned out healthcare providers, oh, physicians, nurses, It's a daily EMTs. challenge. Uh, man, and it's just tremendous. And it just keeps getting worse. And then I mean, when COVID hit, it just, you know, it, it went to the nth degree. So, um, so transcendental meditation. Remember when I was talking about how I would get burned out and I would go and do some deep meditation, and recharge, refresh. It and on a daily basis it works. Okay, and so on the East Coast in particular, and someone on the West Coast, the David Lynch Foundation helped to fund large programs where they taught uh, physicians and other healthcare providers transcendental meditation, and then they actually studied the rates of of burnout, depression, and anxiety in these groups. There's a marked reduction in all those three factors in the people that learn transcendental meditation. So it's very helpful in those. And I think there's some graphs here in this wonderful brochure you showed me that actually shows real data. There's a lot of real data about there's that. There's real yeah. data about that. The other group that I wanted to talk about briefly was, you talked about the military. First of all, around the world in lots of different countries, transcendental meditation is taught to police force and military because, because of their levels of burnout and their levels of stress. Oh, can the you United imagine States government, police officer, the defense, oh my goodness. The Defense Department has a multi-million dollar uh, program studying, again, the use of transcendental meditation in veterans with PTSD. Oh, so, I'm so glad you're getting yeah, to that. I want to talk a little bit about the physiology of that as well. Okay? Please. So, you know, people who have traumatic you know, especially in combat, traumatic experiences, oh. it, it changes their brain, actually, okay? These are the guys, these are the veterans that come back and they can't function in society. They're sleeping with a gun under the bed. There's a wolf at the door every second. Everything is threatening, you know. They're anxious all the time. They're depressed. Their oh. suicide rates are extremely every, like, high. Every seven okay? a day or something? Just every 20 yeah, seconds? Amazing. Whatever it is, it's just amazing. huge. Yeah. So they did a study that was published in Lancet. Uh, published in 2019, comparing transcendental meditation to immersion therapy, which is the is the, kind of the previous gold standard in therapy for veterans with PTSD. Okay. And they compared these two different techniques of treatment in in uh, combat veterans with PTSD, and they found transcendental meditation to be as good and sometimes better than the immersion therapy. The immersion therapy has a lot of consequences to it. I mean, they're kind of recreating these you know, horrible battles things and trying to get them, you know, adjusted to it. Whereas transcendental meditation is just a totally different way about it. Right. So the Defense Department now has funded another program to do uh, in multiple hospitals in the VA to study this program again uh, to make it more widely available. Now, um, a friend of mine who's a transcendental meditation teacher in Arizona happens to know some people here in Columbia that are associated with the Veterans United company. And they have agreed to fund uh, the teaching of transcendental meditation for veterans with PTSD. Uh, so that's so. There's these kind of things that are going on. Well, let's talk about the brain physiology in that. Okay. Please. So what happens when not only in, in combat veterans with PTSD, but anybody you know, police or healthcare providers, emergency room people in particular, um, uh, people who've gone through uh, physical assault, rape victims. Mm. They all have changes in their amygdala. Okay, what happens is that the amygdala, the amygdala is part of the brain that's in the deep inner part of the temporal lobe. Okay, it's like a, it's like a little walnut shaped little structure. almond. I think amygdala means almond. Almond, right? Greek for almond. Okay. Almond. Almond. I said walnut, but it looks like a walnut, but it's shaped like a, like an almond. So 
that gets hyperactive, that gets turned on, so that when you do functional MRI imaging in someone with PTSD, you see that the amygdala is like just burning up, okay? It's like on all the time, okay? Because that's our major fight-flight center, okay? That, that's our, our fight-flight. That's the primitive part of our brain, the primitive part of that what's called limbic system that gives you that fight-flight response, okay? okay? So it's always on. So when you do functional MRI imaging and people doing the transcendental meditation technique, what you see is a cooling down of that amygdala. And that's why it's so effective in people who have these kind of problems is it, it changes the brain physiology, okay? So that's how it works in, in treating people with PTSD. So um, it's just very useful in those kinds of things. If you look at other kinds of, of problems with brain physiology and how it reflects in behavior and, and society in general, if you look at, if you do functional MRI imaging in people who are, are bad criminals, you know, these really bad guys, okay? okay. These guys have been in prison because they killed a lot of people or done bad things. So these psychopath kind of individuals, if you do functional hemorrhaging, they basically don't have any metabolic activity in their frontal lobes, in their prefrontal cortex in particular, okay, uh, up here. So where you're supposed to be making these decisions. Yeah, so what's a, what's a prefrontal cortex do? It's your CEO of the brain. It gives you your upper level cognitive reasoning. It gives you ethical reasoning. It gives you moral reasoning. It allows you to plan for the consequences of your action, your future, you know, what the future consequences are gonna be of your action. If your mm. frontal lobes aren't working, you don't have those capabilities, which is why teenagers are so, are so notorious <laughs> for being crazy, because if you look at how the brain matures, okay, frontal lobes don't become entirely connected with the rest of the brain by a process called myelination. For men, until about the age of 25, and for women, maybe a year or a little earlier, 24, 23. Really? So, you know, in teenagers, all the rest of the brain works pretty good, but they don't have the ability to kind of, you know, think about the future consequences of their action. Yeah, the, they don't have that part of the brain that's going to kind of give them their filter, so to speak. Right. Yeah. So, what's interesting is if you look at functional hemorrhaging in people doing transcendental meditation, there's increased blood flow, increased metabolic activity in the frontal lobe bilaterally, okay? So if you, if you look at the rate of recidivism, recidivism means if you're in prison and then you get out and you go back to prison, right. recidivism. So this, these studies were done back in the 70s, okay? You look at recidivism in people that have learned transcendental meditation while they're in prison, recidivism is cut in half. It's the most effective form of treatment of prisoners to reduce recidivism that's, that's ever been seen. Because that, that's, that's the, one of that's the how big works. problems with yeah. the whole correction system that, that, that you, you, people aren't getting rehabbed and they just they come out dangerous and they go back in. They just learn better techniques to terrorize other right. people from other prisoners. So that's, yeah, it's, look it's, at this and 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 just just for people who want to see, here's some bar graphs yeah. showing actual yeah. data. So where was that published? Uh, this was published. Let's talk a little bit about science. Journal here, okay? of Criminal Justice, 1987. Journal of Offender Rehab, 2003. And these are statistically significant changes. It's on page uh, 20. I want to talk about that very here. statement. Because not everybody watching this is probably a doctor. So... You know, when you yeah. do scientific studies, there's a certain chance that the results of, of what you find in your study may just come up from chance, okay? From chance, yeah. So, you know, you use statistical probability, mathematics, uh, to try to decide what is statistically significant and what isn't in terms of like, well, this could have happened just by random that you found this. Sure. Okay? So it's, it's been decided that if the chances of finding that result has been determined to be happen less than 5% of the time, you know, a p-value less than 0 0.05. One in 20. Then it's, then it's, then it's, it's, it's scientifically, you know, medically significant. If you look at the p-values of, like every study that's been published in this review of, of uh, effects of transcendental meditation, the p-values are, are, are Yeah, phenomenal. it's less than wow. one in a thousand. Yeah, that this is just, just a lucky, this, yeah. this is a happenstance finding. Yeah, so let's talk about Let's talk about one other thing since we're doctors, okay? Sure. Let's talk about reduced rates of death, heart attack, and stroke. Boy, I mean, so that's how they I mean, sell a lot of how drugs. Many, how many strokes did I see when I was in practice? And the longer I was in practice, the more likely it was that the people I was seeing with strokes were younger and younger. 
and that has statistically been proven out as well. So, so that's also a, a something that's been seen. This this yeah. is documented. Strokes are happening right. early in younger people. Yeah. I'll be darned for you know for you know, there's there's greater rates of obesity, hypertension, uh, diabetes, drug use, things that use, hurt the brain. Things that hurt the brain. So there's been a study that's been funded by the National Institute of Health to look at how well does transcendental meditation reduce the risk of heart attack, stroke, and death. So what they did is they took a large group of people, and to get into the study, you had to have a heart attack. That was right, your, so that you're was already your, at high risk. That was your entry criteria, okay? You had to have a heart attack. Right. And so they took half the people, and they gave them the usual medical education. They said, okay, you know, eat this, don't eat that, exercise, blah, blah, watch your blood sugar, you know. And they, so they gave them the real education, and they did that. The other half, they taught them transcendental meditation. Okay. In so addition this, to this, that? No. Well, maybe in addition. You know, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure if it was in addition to. But okay. they compared those two groups. But okay? one group did and meditate, this, did TM, one yeah. did not. And so, and this study is still ongoing. Okay. Ah. So if you look, and this is on page 13, if you want to look at this. I would. And we'll show that this is also a p-value of 0 0.03. TM program or health education control group. 47% lower risk for death, heart attack, and stroke and the TM group over an average of five years compared to controls. This so study is still the blue. Ongoing, the okay? blue column is a lot smaller, a lot shorter smaller, okay? than the red column. I mean, you're reducing your risk of, 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 of recurrent heart attack or a stroke or death by half. You know, if you had a Stat pill, if you had a pill, pill that, that, right. that did that, stands, it's only like 0.3% or something. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like if Pfizer did that, man. I'd buy stock in it. Yeah, I'd buy stock in that one. I'd take that pill. <laughs> so this study's still ongoing, and I've, I've heard, I haven't seen, I haven't actually visualized, you know, seen the data, but I've heard that the data ongoing for like, I think it's eight years now or something, is even more profound. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge It wasn't effect. a blip. It's a, it's a trend. It's a, it's a powerful effect. trend. It's a huge effect, yeah. So, and this technique is, it's so easy, and it's just, it's a natural technique. We're not... We're not putting anything in, okay? We're just using things that are already there, okay? And we're not changing your belief system. They're not changing your religion. You're not having to send lots of money to some... There's no philosophy. To philosophy. <laughs> You're not supporting some terrorist group. No. This is a just simply a technique. No, no. and it, you know, it, it's supported by Maharishi Foundation International. I'm excuse me, Maharishi Foundation USA, which is a not-for-profit educational organization, okay? So that's, that's the foundation that is behind the teaching here. And there's the David Lynch Foundation, which also kind of helps teach certain groups like veterans of PTSD, healthcare workers, uh, inner, inner city children, stuff like that. So wow. the technique is so easy and so simple, and it's amazing how profound the results are. You know, it's just, and, and every study that you look at, you know, atherosclerosis, hypertension, diabetes, uh, improved academic performance, decreased anxiety, Markedly increased creativity, which is interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, you know that when you transcend that 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 pure awareness, that that transcendental consciousness, Maharishi also called that creative intelligence. He also mm -hmm. called it the unified field of consciousness, which we'll talk about maybe in a minute. Sure. But he also called it creative intelligence. He says that's the source of creativity. And so when people transcend, if you look at how functional brain changes occur in people doing transcendental meditation. If you look at kind of higher levels of brain function in regards to IQ testing, grade point averages, and things like that, the thing that's most profoundly helped or increased is creativity, which is interesting. And we need lots of creativity in this world to solve all the problems we have. I think Einstein says something that creativity was more important than intelligence, or imagination, I think he says. Yeah, yeah maybe the same thing. Maybe the same thing. Yeah. So interesting, very interesting stuff. So what, what I was going to say, oh yeah. So Maharishi also called it kind of the unified field of consciousness. Okay? Yeah, to explain so, that, please. Yeah, so you know, in Western thought, you know, we, we think of consciousness as being an individual phenomenon. I have my consciousness, you have your consciousness. I have my extreme, own. Here, here's you have your word. opinion, I have my opinion. Okay? Right. Well, one of my favorite <laughs> words is solipsism. It says the only thing you can believe is yourself. Everything else <laughs> might not be real. It's just me that I can believe because it's the only thing I can experience. 
So Maharishi said, you know, at a deeper level, at the transcendental level, but that's not really the case. That there's mm. really that there's really a field effect of consciousness. Okay, he says it's like like uh, there's a radio transmitter, you know, and there's a you know, a field effect. There's a field of transmission that that radio signal gets throughout the entire area. Okay, he says that the same thing happens in terms of human consciousness. We're kind of aware of this aware of this concept, maybe not using that terminology. But we're kind of aware of kind of a, a group awareness. You know, we think about right. national mood. Okay, sure. there's been studies to, to show, like, to try to predict which way the stock market's going to go by what kind of music people listen to. Okay, and it's actually been kind of successful, from what I understand. Yeah, this is not kooky stuff. I mean, so it's, it's there's even, a national mood. There's a national consciousness. You know that what we think of that. Yeah, and and and, and fields may be much more uh, complex and maybe may at a quantum level. Um, and it may even have implications for uh, for evolution and whatnot. There's a lot of I mean, there's a lot yeah. of things that that we don't understand. I mean, it's like right. Look at um, uh, in terms of like quantum uh, theory and stuff. Look at um, if you if you take two particles and kind of split them, and one has upspin and one has downspin, and you separate two those two They're particles. They're still linked. They're still linked. What's that? Light called? years apart. Entanglement. Entanglement. Quantum entanglement. Is a yeah, real and, thing, and that's been proved to actually happen. You can put a particle, split them, put one particle up in orbit in the United, uh, above the United States, change the spin of the particle that's down here in some laboratory, and instantly the particle and up there in orbit changes its spin. I mean, and how does that? They're happen? working on quantum okay. computers. It's, I mean, it, 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 entangled so states. So there, there's things that we don't understand. It's like. You know, we thought we knew, oh, the universe is growing and it's expanding and stuff. And then they put the Hubble telescope up and all of a sudden discovering these galaxies that, whoa, wait a second, those galaxies that are that far out aren't supposed to be that old. Maybe we yeah. need to rethink our all whole cosmology. And things field. are it's spreading like, faster, and, and maybe. There, yeah. <laughs> and there's yeah. like, well, there's there's dark matter and there's dark energy and stuff. And it's like, now they're, they're thinking maybe we're just totally wrong about things or maybe things and, we don't understand. And, so, and this isn't this isn't goofy mysticism. Stuff, Not at all. Okay, this is just it's just a different layer of reality. It's just a different layer of reality. It's like we have layers of molecules, layers of atoms, layers of we experience electrons. four dimensions. David, there's mathematical theories of everything that say there may be fourteen. Fourteen, yeah, fourteen, 14 dimensions, all interwoven. Well, and String theory, I think they said it was like ten or something like that. I think it's ten or eleven, but there's a new geometric, not so new. Uh, Geometric oh, representation might be fourteen with all these uh, fiber fields and interconnections. <laughs> uh, so I think we can all agree that the world is mysterious, uh, and there's more to be learned. But, but I'm going to come back to TM here. There's some. This there's is some not uh, wackadoodle stuff. No, there's some uh, good uh, things on YouTube by Dr. Tony Nader, who kind of took Maharishi's place as the head of the TMization. As well as John Hagelin, who's the president of Maharishi National University. John Hagelin is a very uh, well-known, renowned um, quantum physicist who did a lot of work on string theory years ago, and his his papers on string theory are, are you know, well, very well known. Um, he's now the president of Maharishi National University, and they do a really good job of talking about this level of the phenomenon in terms of the quantum field. I'm not a physicist, and I I can't really. I can't, my brain can't wrap around those things yeah. and describe them. But they have different brains, these yeah. guys. Yeah, but uh, but they they have a very you know astute understanding of it. We've shown here that this technique goes back thousands of years. Very smart people have been involved in its development, its dissemination. We see there's scientific data showing benefits, and you and I have both. You a lot more than I have. I, I don't meditate every day. I do have meditative practices. Another one even may not be like playing chess, but fly fishing. When I'm focused <laughs> on that fly, waiting for the hit. And another meditative practice I have now is I like looking for artifacts or arrowheads in creeks. And it's a very meditative process. You're looking at billions, I counted, just billions of rocks, trying to see, trying to be aware for that, that piece to come out and, yeah. and, and, and reach your level of consciousness and you pick it out. It's an incredible 
uh, regenerative uh, activity. So now, can you tell us how does one meditate? Can you, as a teacher, give us just a basic overview? How does one perform transcendental meditation? So it's done sitting in a chair, eyes closed, 20 minutes, twice a day. Okay. And that's it. Uh, you do it 20 minutes twice a day. You take a little time going in, a little time coming out. And the rest of the day, you do your normal <clears throat> daily activities. Okay. The effect of TM lasts throughout the day. Okay. So it makes you more able to withstand the stresses of the day, make better decisions through the day. The day goes easier. Then you get home, you meditate again, it kind of rejuvenates you. So that's the way the practice is and done. You don't do it before bed, you do it kind of in the evening time, and then you don't go to right. sleep immediately, I believe. Yeah, you, you do it usually before your evening meal. So that's how it's done. So, you know, and we tell people, you know, it, it's nice to do it in a quiet surrounding, but you can do it in a car, in a train, in a plane. I meditated a lot on airplanes. That's a very nice place to meditate, actually. So you can meditate anywhere. The noise is the, and we're not, we're not concentrating. We're not trying to drive out thoughts, okay? Thoughts occur in meditation. We don't try to drive them out, okay? They, they come and they go, but it doesn't inhibit us from doing that transcending process. Eventually things, you know, in a few minutes, things quiet down and you get that experience. Now the meditation is, is kind of cyclic in a way in that, you know, we start at a certain active thinking level. So it's, let's think of it this way. So it's kind of like uh, an ocean and you have these big waves on the surface of the ocean, okay? A lot of activity going on and wind. That's kind of like our active thinking level of the brain. That's where your brain and my brain's at right now. It's our right. active thinking level. We're talking, we're concentrating, we're trying to communicate. Okay, but there's deeper levels of the brain. If you look at the ocean, there may be you know huge hundred foot waves in the surface of the ocean, but you go down to the inner depths of the ocean, like a mile deep, and it's very quiet, very mm -hmm. still. Okay, mm -hmm. so that active thinking level of the brain that's there, but with the TM process, we're able to experience these quieter, quieter, deeper, more subtle levels of awareness and consciousness. It's a technology of consciousness that allows us to experience this. And it's, it's, it's very easy to do. Can you tell us a little bit more about the technique and the mantra? So the mantra is a meaningless sound. It has a, a very good, all good life-supporting effect. It's one that's chosen you know, by your teacher and, and given to you. And it's one that's just easily repeated at the beginning of the practice, and then it kind of gets a little more subtle and more subtle and more refined, and then it goes away, and then you have this experience of falling into yourself, as we said, okay? So other than that, then you have to, like, if you come and I'll teach you, then I can kind of give you more specifics about the technique. Yeah, I'm not looking for all that nuts and bolts here, and that's why you need a teacher, and it's something yeah. you, you need a guidance on. I just wanted to just you just briefly explain that. And that guidance, you know, it's like the 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 course four days, and typically, and then usually I'll see people back like one day, ten to fourteen days. And if people want to come back and tune up their meditation, mm -hmm. then you know, you know, there's a fee at the beginning if it goes to the foundation, but there's no fees after that. You've got this for lifelong. You're basically for the cost of a cell phone, you've got it for your whole life. It's not like you get the cell phone, then you got to pay the right. you know, Verizon or whoever for your monthly fee. It's just so a one time, and you're good to go for the rest of your life. You're not like getting when wealthy I lived, doing this, David. No, no. In fact, I've lost a lot of you're money. Lot of it cost money. me a lot of money to go to teacher training, and I'll never make that money back. So it's like, See, there you go. Yeah, so You do it for the right reasons. Yeah, and I'll tell you what. I wish I would have done it a lot, you know, a lot long time ago, because it's the most fun. It's the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. Is teaching TM. It is a charge. It is great. It is to give people that experience, that experience that you just described. Yeah. You know, when you were how old were you? 13. Were you 13. That, to give that experience to people and they come out and go, wow, it's like, it's cool. It's a cool thing to do. You know, yeah. I get to experience that with them. You know, the first time in their life that they've, and some people are in horrible, horrible shape mentally. They're anxious, they can't sleep. You know, and to give them that experience and give them that relief, they go, wow. The other American that I went to teacher training with, I should tell you his story. Please do. So this is Danny, okay? Danny did two tours of duty in Palaja, 
Okay. And he grew in Iraq up, in a very violent street to street and combat yeah. situation. He grew up in the South. Okay. He went to uh, military schools from the time he was a little kid. His parents were busy doing other things. And basically, he got brought up in these military academies. And he joined the Marines. You know, as soon as he graduated from the military academy, he joined the Marines at 18 years of age. Wow, as soon as he could sign up. He's up he's up in Falaja and he did two tours of duty and he saw a lot of bad things happen there. Yeah. So he got back and you know, he had PTSD major. You know, gun under the pillow, you know, he was drinking, smoking, couldn't keep a job, sure. depressed, you know, thought about killing himself. It was just in a horrible state of mind. Um it was just pitiful. And so I said, Hey, you should, you know, you should Think about learning transcendental meditation. So he did, and it was like that—that that relief, that super relief, that thinking that wow, this is incredible. He's the guy. He's the only other American with a teacher training with me. He learned TM. It was great. He ended up. He visited Maharishi National University. Mm -hmm. Became a student there for a little while. This is after two tours of duty in Falaja. I said, "Man, I'm going to become a teacher," and went to teacher training. So this is the kind of effect it has. Uh, so that's the great story. I like to tell the story about Danny. So I still see him occasionally if I go up to Iowa. He's, he's a character. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about how the mind and the body are not a dual. They are not separate. They're very this is intimately not a, connected. This is not a moral failing if you have PTSD. You're seeing with these, with these scans of the brain, you're seeing actual organic problems. That dysfunctions that when improved upon by whatever means, if it's a, a healthy natural drug-free way with TM, are actually measurable. So it's not a moral thing. It's not like he's a bad guy, but there's actually healing and improvement that can be done at the tissue level, at the organ level. Yeah, you said a real key thing there, I think, and I think it, it's, it's something that is deep in our culture that that we need to talk about and think about because. When somebody has problems like that, or you know, from combat or rape or something, um, or if they're you know if they're have an addiction problem, right. you know, we see it as a moral failing. You know, that's right. the, kind of the way our culture is like you're weak, you right. know, you're weak, you're a sinner, you're it's a moral failing. You know, there's, right. you know, but there's changes that go on in the physiology and in the brain physiology that happen to people because of these issues. Okay. But we need to realize that the mind, the mind and the body are very intimately connected, okay? But there are ways to get it better. So mm -hmm. there's a neurophysiologist I know who wrote a beautiful book called Your Brain's a River, Not a Rock, okay? Oh, I love it. Yeah. So that when you have problems like PTSD or, you know, addiction problems or whatever, you know, Moral failure, you know, it's not a moral failure. You've got changes in your brain that are kind of causing you to do things and to think things, to have fears and anxiety and depression, okay? The but poor guy's been shot at street to street in Fallujah. <laughs> I mean, I mean it's, a, when you, it's a reaction. You get this experience of the transcendent, of transcendental mm. consciousness, that you know, falling within yourself, that, that, that peacefulness, okay? It creates changes that improve things in the brain. Every experience that you have, has an effect on our brain, on our neurotransmitters, on our connections, okay? On those interconnections within the brain, okay? And when you do TM, the interconnections between the, the prefrontal cortex and the rest of the brain become stronger and better, and all that hyperactive stuff in the amygdala gets less, okay? There's actual physiologic changes occurring in the brain that, that changes the rest of our physiology. That's why when you look uh, at I love like, it, I love it. You can feel the, the vagus nerve, you can just feel the relaxation. In look the at cortisol levels, you know? If you look at cortisol levels like during sleep, you know, you get rid of fatigue and stress when you sleep, and they go down a little bit, okay? You know, cortisol levels are kind of indicative of, it's like a stress hormone, sure. okay? You know, by the adrenal gland. So when you look at cortisol levels in a group sitting in, in a chair with eyes closed compared to a group doing transcendental meditation, over just a 20-minute period of time, see this Basically, very little change in someone sitting there just with eyes closed in a chair. In transmutation, uh, you see reduction of like thirty percent of your cortisol levels when you oh meditate, and then it, you know it continues on to be significantly lower. So, I mean, just that one level alone it has that, a that, big effect. That's a slam dunk, David. 
Those are a bunch of physiologic things like that you can measure. You talked about the vagus nerve, you know, the other part of it, which is part of you know, the nervous system that has to do with the heart rate and our gut and stuff. You can do like, um, it's called galvanic skin response testing. Okay? That's part of the lie detector. Yeah, you put How two electrodes you... on the palm, okay, right. or one on the finger or on the palm, and you put a little current between those two electrodes. If you're nervous, your sympathetic nervous system activates and your sweat glands in the palm of your hand secrete a little bit more sweat. That increases the conductivity between those two electrodes. Okay, you can measure that yeah. on a graph. So you can measure that in people sitting in a, in a chair with eyes closed, and compare it to people sitting there and doing transcendental meditation. There's a huge difference. Another, you know, when there's a p value of point zero 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 five or something, uh, there's always different measures that you can do. In terms of, so it's not it's not a it's not a, a mood thing. It's not a uh, uh, kind of a fantasy that oh yeah. is this real. There's always different real changes that occur. One thing I wanted to bring out, I said the word mood and it brought to mind that, that one comparison to transcendental meditation to say something like mindfulness and other techniques is that you do transcendental meditation, you get settled, you come out and you do your job. You're active, okay, and you do your job. And you do it the best that you can possibly do it, whatever your job may be, whether you're, whether you're Making babies, I mean, medically wise. <laughs> Making babies, that's what <laughs> or, we do. Or, you know, we or do. whether you're putting a tire on a car or something, you, know, you, do, you do your job. And, right. you, and you don't think about TM. You don't, you don't make a mood of anything. It's like, oh, now I'm a meditator and all. You know, I'm a, I'm a, what's this word I was saying? Right, like, right, oh, right. yeah, and everything's peaceful. Yeah, it's not like that, okay? It, TM is like, it's great for Western cultures because we're active, creative, dynamic people. And... And that's what we need. We need active, creative, dynamic people. Mm. So, and we don't think, well, I'm going to be mindful or kind of this. It's not a mood-making process. We meditate, and it creates changes, and those changes can come out in our behavior, okay, in terms of our brain changes and stuff, but we don't make a mood of it. It's not like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be all peaceful and nice and pleasant, right. and, you know, because I'm a meditator, and I can't get mad, and I can't get too happy. <laughs> not virtue signaling. And mood follows follows action. Yes, so, uh, yeah. It's like trying to be happy. You know, you can't try to be happy. If you do a good job, you be a good person, then you get happy. So you just, you know, it's a natural technique, and your behavior during the day is just natural. You just be natural. Well, David, what a fantastic explanation of transcendental meditation. What a fantastic uh, learning experience for me. Uh, I just got to tell you, talking to you about this, I, I know how to do it. I, I don't do it regularly. Got to be regular. Maybe a regularity <laughs> is a good thing. Maybe I'm gonna, it's really important. Maybe and I'm going to start doing this myself again. And there's actually statistical proof of that. Okay, you know that study we were talking about? stroke, heart attack, deaths, you know? Yeah. So those people that were taught to meditate, not all of them were doing it, you know, 20 minutes twice a day, every day. Some people were not quite so regular. So they divided, statistically, they divided those two groups into uh, people that were irregular and people that were regular. Uh, and, and there was a statistical difference in terms of the rate of those three indicators, heart attack, stroke, and death, between those two groups. So there's what's called a being, dose dependency. If you do it being, right, full dose <laughs> is better than half-ass. Being regular is very important, and there's statistical proof of it. Fantastic. Well, David, I've learned an awful lot. If, uh, if somebody listening or watching wants to get a hold of you or a TM teacher, how would they do yeah. that? So if you're, if you're in mid-Missouri and you want to learn, you can contact me at my email address, which is D, as in David, D. McLaren, McLaren like the car, M-C-L-A-R-E-N, McLaren at tm.org. Okay. Email me, I'll get a hold of it. The other thing, if you're not in Missouri, okay, then if you go to the um, website, tm.org, and that's, it's, it's got a lot of information on that website, a little thing will pop up. They'll say, hey, if you want to find a teacher, put in your, your name, your email address, and if you want to, your phone number, you know, sure. and a teacher. And so that, that information you get put will get sent to the teacher in your area, okay? So there's so, a network uh, of teachers in the United States. Yeah. And, and around the world. Yeah, around the world. So there's teachers, there are teachers everywhere, there's centers everywhere. So there's teachers in St. Louis, there's teachers in Kansas City, there's teachers in Cape Girardeau. Um, and, you know, the, 
there's lots of teachers in the east and west coast. Uh, if you travel sure. around the world, you know, if you go to London, you want to get your TM checked, you're like, oh, I'm not teaching that good. You can go to the TM center, okay? There are centers all, all the world. There's big Singapore, ones in Switzerland, too, right? Everywhere. 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 I mean, yeah, uh, the only nice. place I could think of that where there's not is maybe North Korea. Okay? <laughs> and TM, in some of the countries, and I won't say the names, but it's kind of yeah. taught kind of underground, you know, and sure. a few. But even like in places like China, it's like it's taught, it's taught in China. When I was there at teacher training in Thailand, there were some people there getting some what we call advanced techniques. And there was, there were, there were, they were all Chinese, four groups of them. One from, group from Taiwan, one group from Hong Kong, one group from Beijing, and one group from Shanghai. So these are, you know, there's a lot of conflict Chinese going centers. on, there, right? Yeah, right, right. But, you know. Unity there. Yeah, it was like, man, we're all in the TM, you know. It's like, so it, it's, it's taught everywhere you can think of. Good. Well, we'll put some links in the description below. Okay. I want you to Thanks for a having me. Thanks a lot. Wonderful a lot discussion, Dave. Yeah. It was great to see you. Thank you for coming tonight. Sure. Thanks for having me, Gil. Good to see you again.